anytime that there's a downturn in the economy, people start companies. And if you look at some of the companies that are the most popular, biggest brand names today, Airbnb, Lyft, Uber, they all came out of the last downturn. The question is, what's going to come out of this one? Welcome to the Earned Media Podcast. What does it take to earn the confidence of angel investors? What does it take to pitch startups to early stage investors and get funded? And what does it take in a post-COVID environment? To answer these questions, we have a real live shark in the tank today. Our guest is angel investor and startup Nevada executive director, Jeff Sailing. As Nevada's only statewide business incubator, Startup Nevada helps businesses take, uh, helps startups take business ideas from beta to revenue. And today, Jeff Sailing is going to talk to us about what types of deals are getting done these days, the elements of a perfect pitch, and securing early stage investors. Uh, if you're tuning in on social media, we do this every Wednesday, it's free and you can subscribe at ericschwartzman.com forward slash earned media. Uh, the chat is open for networking. This is uh, a virtual networking event, so don't be shy. Uh, we don't police the chat, um, so connect amongst yourselves uh, and do deals. Get funded in the chat on the earned media hour. Um, connect among yourselves. Uh, but please, if you have questions, put those in the Q&A. So, uh, you know, comments in the chat, questions in the Q&A, and I'll actually invite you to come on screen and ask your question or try out your elevator pitch on Jeff, if you'd like. We'll, we'll make this a sort of a clinic um, so you can get your questions answered too. But first, um, if you want to use social media to get more clients, you should definitely download the 2021 Social Media Trends Report, uh, which predicts the top 10 trends in social media marketing for 2021. You can download it at ericschwartzman.com forward slash talkwalker. And I'm going to put a link in the chat. There it is. Uh, the 2021 Social Media Trends Report is uh, based on insights using TalkWalker Analytics and TalkWalker Quick Search. If you aren't aware of TalkWalker, it's a very powerful social media analytics platform uh, that you can use to monitor what's being said about your brand on social media. And you can track buyer-oriented conversations. Right now, people are using social networks to talk about what to buy who to buy from, what to invest in, where to find investors. And if you're listening to those conversations, you can steer the decision-making process. The 2021 Social Media Trends Report will help you do that. It just came out. And again, you can download a free copy of the report at ericschwartzman.com forward slash talkwalker. Um, and let's get started. Uh, Jay Sailing, welcome to the Earned Media Hour. I, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me on. And I loved having earned some time on your media channel. Um, so, so obviously, we're seeing a great deal of change right now as a result of the pandemic in all aspects of our lives. How has COVID-19 impacted the types of startups that are that are getting invested in? 
Um, well, there's definitely more of an interest in things that are related to COVID if they can have legs beyond COVID. Because while everybody believes there's urgency now, they also investors know that at some point, this is not going to be as big a part of our life as it is right now. Um, so if, you know, and I'll give you an example. We have a, a company that's in our, uh, that's a member of our startup community at Startup MD um, that provides a software service for long-term care facilities. Um, it helps manage the relationships between the families and the residents of the, of the long-term care facilities. Clearly, that's an issue now with COVID and people not being able to, to visit and get good information about what's going on with their family members. But it also has a long-term benefit as well. So that's a really good example of something that's getting real interest now, but also has some legs for later versus, you know, PPE play that might be, you know, really relevant now, but, you know, I, it'll have some legs, but maybe not quite the same as uh, the other software as a service company I mentioned before. Has, has the pandemic sort of cleared the field? Um, has the number of startups that are searching for early stage investment changed since March? Are there fewer standing? Well, it's, it's harder, but there are more. Anytime that there's a downturn in the economy, people start companies. And if you look at some of the companies that are the most popular, biggest brand names today, Airbnb, Lyft, Uber, they all came out of the last downturn. The question is, what's going to come out of this one? Uh, there's lots of companies out there. Our activity has picked up. Um, you know, and for example, we, we're running a, uh, a boot camp right now called Angel Envy, and it's, uh, it's, it's a two-sided thing. The, the first side is for founders, essentially helping them to understand what do angels want? What makes them investable to angels? The other half is you know, finding angel investors who want to learn how to be productive angels. We, we expected 60 to 70 companies to apply to our, the, the founder half, the founder boot camp. And we, uh, we have had over 300 companies apply. Um, so that gives you an indication of the pent up or the demand that's out there for folks to, who want to start their own business and take you know, it's control back in their lives as opposed to working a regular job. Well, what types of startups are investors most interested in right now? That it really depends on the, the investor. I mean, different investors have preferences for different things. For example, uh, I like investing in software as a service and software companies for two reasons. Number one, they're super, super capital efficient. You're not investing in big inventories and manufacturing and a bunch of things like that. And second, it's where I spent my career. Um, I, so I know a lot about it. I'm comfortable in that environment. Um, and you're going to find other investors. Uh, we have a lot of, you know, medical or biotech related companies in our incubator as well. And we have a lot of people who invest in those kinds of companies who are super comfortable with those things. I don't know as much about those companies, so I rely on my colleagues that do. Um, they don't know as much about SaaS, so they rely on me when we're looking at an investment in SaaS to sort of team up and, and make that investment. So the, the investment community has its own specialties, and I wouldn't say that there's one thing that's particularly favored over another. It really it depends on who you're in front of. I mean, if, and if you have a SaaS company, don't chase a biotech investor. If you have a biotech company, don't chase the SaaS investor. You know, chase the investors that that 
are interested in what you're doing. How do you slice up the software as a service market? Because you've got enterprise and then you've got MailChimp. So do you find that there are, you know, different investors interested in different classes of SaaS? How do you, um, do you have a hierarchy for how you think about SaaS? Yeah, I think about it in three sort of chunks. There's the enterprise class, the ones that are selling to the Fortune 1000, Fortune 500 companies, which is where I spent a lot of my career before, before doing Startup MD. And then you've got your B2B, your sort of main B2Bs, which, which could include the enterprise guys, um, but oftentimes they're focused more on the, the smaller to middle-sized businesses that are out there, like MailChimp. It's a good example of that. Um, and then you have your B2C stuff. Um, you know, things like Strava, something that I'm a customer of, you know, that, 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 that tracks my miles running and, and, and bicycling and swimming and that kind of thing where you're selling actually to individual consumers. Um, so, you know, depending on what your interest is as an investor, you tend to focus on either the enterprise, there's a whole bunch of folks, especially as the, as you get into a round and bigger types of investment that will only invest in enterprise people that are selling SaaS uh, to enterprise. Um, sometimes they'll kind of go downstream a little bit into the B2B stuff, but usually the B2C and the B2B and the B2E, if you want to call it that, are kind of three separate categories. So let's let's talk about angel investors. First of all, what is an angel investor? Uh, there, uh, so I'll break it down into sort of the different rounds of funding, and the angels really play in two of those rounds. So when somebody starts a company, usually they put some money in themselves. So it's founder-funded for a while. The next round of funding usually comes from friends and families. And some people will call that friends, families, and fools. Uh, but we like to, to, to call it friends and family. Um, those are the people who know the founder. They're not going to be as critical of the business. They know and trust that human that they love and respect, and they're going to invest in them. Um, that's usually where the next round of funding comes from. The next round of funding where you start to ask for money from people who don't know you um, is a often called the pre-seed or the seed round, and angels play in both of those rounds. Um, pre-seed usually is thought of as a company that's pre-revenue or just on the border. Maybe they're in their, maybe they've only got 10 or 20 or 50 or $100,000 per year of revenue, uh, but they're just starting to take their product out to market. Um, that's, all, that's kind of where Startup NV and our fund, uh, fund NV lives is in that sort of pre-seed and is usually the first round of funding outside of the friends and family. And then the next round is your seed round, which is somebody who's got a company that's probably in the half million to million dollars a year gross sales area. Um, and there's a lot of angels that play in that area. And, you know, this is a, this is a startup, but it has some proof of life. I mean, there, there are, there is proof that they've built something that people want whether they're selling to businesses or, or consumers or enterprises. So that's a, that's a, those rounds of funding tend to be, you know, 150,000 would probably be on the low end of it. Two and a half, three million is probably on the high part of that seed round of funding. Um, and then you get into the really big professional funds at that point who are doing the A rounds. Um, you know, the A rounds used to reach all the way down into the low seven figures or even into the high six figures, but they're now at, you know, a small A round is $5 million. 
um, because the, 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 these big professional organizations have taken in so much money, hundreds of millions of dollars that they have to invest. And if they're investing at a million dollars at a time, they have to do a lot of deals to get that money on the street. So they tend to look for bigger deals. Um, and then, of course, you go from A to B to C. And there's you know, all the way up to F and private equity rounds that get into the much, more, much, much more mature companies. What are the best? What is the best and the worst early stage investment you've ever done? Um, so the best is, is in a, um, is in a company that created a market called, um, the company is called Aptio and the, and the market that they created is called, I'm trying to remember how they actually characterized it. They sold the enterprises that helped the CFO or the CIO of really large organizations essentially create their own services company that serviced the rest of the organization. So they supplied IT business or IT services to the rest of the business. So, and the idea that they created was called technology business management or TDM. Um, the company came out, um, grew for about four or five years, went public and then was taken back private again. Um, so the, you know, if, if you, if you want to, quantify it from a stock price perspective. Um, the early investors got in at a dollar-ish or less than a dollar per share. It went public at 14, got as high as 40, and was taken back private at 38. Um, that's, a, that's a good investment. I mean, whether you invested you know, $100,000 or a few million, uh, if you got in on the early rounds, it was a really good investment. Um, let's see, the, the worst one... I've done personally is um, it was, it was a, a, a company that was a social media marketing company. And the idea of it was a bunch of everybody would kind of go together into a queue and we would, we would all load our social media posts into a queue, connect our social media accounts to the queue. And then we would post each other's social media from that queue, giving, uh, we would essentially be helping each other out without just using the like button. So it's a, it's a, it's a really efficient way to repost. Uh, when we took it out to market, we interviewed hundreds of people and they, they all thought it was a great idea. And yes, they would buy it. So we built it. And what happened was everybody did, was awesome at it for about two weeks and then they stopped. <laughs> um, so over the, over the course of about a two year period, um, the company pivoted a couple of times and ultimately it just didn't work. We, we built something that not enough people wanted or we couldn't change behavior of the people who were to use it. Um, I've seen, I mean, that may have been my worst financial investment. I still don't think it was a bad idea or poorly executed, but it was clearly something that the market didn't want. I've seen lots of other ideas that I didn't invest in that were really dumb. Um, if you want one of those, I'm, I'll, I'll share one. With you. I do. I do want you to share that. I just want to uh, let you know that um, I'm going to, Lori, I'm going to bring you on screen to ask your question uh, after his uh, next hand, after this next comment. Great. So this particular founder actually had us change our methodology of looking for deals at Startup MV. Uh, normally we expect the founder to come in and make a, 
anywhere from a five to 10 minute pitch using slides. That's just sort of the convention. Um, this particular founder came in and I, I, I think he was stoned. Um, and he, he, you know, there was a room full of eight or 10 people in Las Vegas. We had another room full of eight or 10 people up in Reno, investors who were considering these companies coming in to pitch. The guy sticks his feet up on the desk, uh, pulls out a, a, a can, it looks like an aerosol can with a mask on it. And he puts the mask on his face and he squirts this, what, what, what turned out to be oxygen into his mouth, his lungs. And then it was like, hey, dude, people who smoke pot need extra oxygen. And my idea is to take these cans of oxygen, put a mask on them. And now that it's legal, we'll sell them at all the dispensaries. And he was, you know, he was asking like $150,000, had no business plan, had no idea what he was doing. It was embarrassing. Um, and I, I have no idea whether that could be a good business or not. But it was, it was, it looked like a, it was, it looked really bad. Lori, I just invited you to come uh, on uh, screen and, and ask your question. So while she's figuring that out, is there, um, is there, is there an investment that, you know, you didn't make that you're sorry you didn't make? Yeah, there, there is. I, I still have the opportunity to make it, but I did not get in early enough. Um, another company that's in our incubator, um, is it's a longer term play. It's a biotech company and they are, they, their thesis is you can use the basics, the basis for psychedelics, the, the things that create magic, that make you hallucinate if you take magic mushrooms, um, psilocybin, I think is what it's called. And they are breaking that down to take out the hallucinogenic effects and use it to rewire your brain to cure addiction. So the facts that, that it sort of makes you hallucinate, it messes with your brain chemistry, and they're using that to cure you from being addicted to opioids or cure you from being addicted to even behavioral things like uh, gambling or porn, uh, you know, behavioral things that aren't physically addicted. Um, it's really amazing um, the work that they're doing. It's not. It's not a. It's not recreational. It is medicine. So they're going through all the approval processes to you know to, to become an approved drug um, at various places around the world. Um, and I had the opportunity to invest very very early with those guys. I didn't. Um, they're still pretty inexpensive, and, and I may still do it. At what point in the game? Should founders retain marketing or PR support? As early as they can afford it. I mean, they have to face that how to do it right from the right from the jump. As soon as they want to start attracting customers, they need to address both of those problems. If they don't have the money to hire a professional, they have to figure out a way to do it on their own or to recruit board members or other experts who might help them a little bit either for exchange for equity or for it's just because they want to help them as a mentor. Um, but it's one of the very first investments that you want to make, you know, as a founder is, is it's the thing that your investors will be the most curious about is how is it that you're going to get to market? How are you going to take this thing that you built or this solution that you've built and attract customers for it? And a combination of Inbound marketing, outbound marketing, PR, and all of those those professional disciplines are oh, something that you want to address early on. Pia, you have a question? I do. It's actually two-part now that I have an uh, opportunity. But with the virtual meetings, um, 
I live in Honolulu. And so our entrepreneurs are frequently told that you have to be close to uh, Silicon Valley or other places uh, to be close to the, to the investor. Um, and I, I'm just, I think with virtual, that has changed quite a bit. And I wanted to get your uh, take on that. Thank you. Um, thank you. It's a great question. It's one that it's, it's one of the reasons that we as Startup NV started focusing on creating local capital for our Nevada-based startups. So I'm, I know that it's, it's a similar situation in Hawaii. The earliest stage capital, and if you, if you remember I talked about family and friends pre-seed and seed before you get into the A rounds, those pre-seed and seed rounds usually come from somewhere near you. They're usually made up of people who care about the local community that they live in, and they want to see it succeed economically, and they, they want to know the founder. So those earliest stages do typically come from local investors. And so you do want to develop that local ecosystem of angels that are in pre-seed and seed investing rounds nearby. When you can raise money from elsewhere, we've had 17 of the startups in our group raised $40 million, and less than 1% of it actually came from Nevada investors, which is the main reason that inspired us to do things like Angel MV to try to create more angel investors in Nevada, precisely for the reason that you're talking about here. When you get, it's much harder to attract investors who aren't local. When you get into the big rounds, it doesn't matter as much. But when you're in those earlier stages, it, it doesn't have to matter, but it does. And the other thing that's important, sort of from an economic development perspective, is when those founders ultimately succeed that have attracted that early stage investment, you know, the founders and usually the employees have been shared some stock with and everybody makes a little money, right? There's a little bit of wealth created. Um, and you want the investors who invested them to also be in your local community and have a little wealth creation for them as well. And the reason you want that is because what are those people going to do with the money? I mean, the, the founders usually go through this 90 day cycle of, Hey, I made it. I made a big pile of money. I'm going to retire and I'm going to do fill in the blank with whatever your hobby is, golfing, tennis, fishing, whatever. They do that for 90 days and then they're bored out of their minds and they do either one or both of two things. They either start another business and, and reinvest their money or they become angel investors or they do both. Um, and that virtuous cycle and the same thing happens with the investors, right? They, they make a bunch of money and they are going to either feed their hobbies or they're going to invest in other startups. And you want that happening in your local economy and so that's the, that's why it's important to create local local investment, and it's there's certainly enough wealth in Hawaii to do that. You just have to you have to get them engaged. Um, and when you're looking for those A rounds and those bigger rounds, yeah, it used to be the the because I've had the Silicon Valley guys tell me, even though we've had I've been part of three companies that went to an IPO, and still some of the some of the colleagues that we made money together wouldn't invest in some of the companies I was with in Austin, Texas from Silicon Valley, because they said, are you going to move the company to the Bay area? And it's like, why would I do that? It's like five times more expensive. And um, I'm not going to uproot all the people. 
It's like, well, but that's what we want. It's like, you guys never even come to our office. Why do you care where we are? Um, so, but that, that desire, you can call it not logical is still there to, for investors to be able to be a little bit more personally engaged with things that they're investing in. Uh, Aloha Pia. Thanks for, uh, thanks for asking that. Um, Lori. I think hey, you're muted. So uh, let us, let us. Uh, okay. What's your question? Jeff, how you doing? Hi, Eric. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you. Thank you for, okay. for coming. I just want to start a small little business of my own. Um, but I have no friends or family who have any money and I live off a disability. So where do I find investors? Where do I find my angels? Okay. So, so hey, and I, 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 I recognize, Lori, you're a little bit of tea, right? Is, your, is what you're doing? Right? Correct. So Lori is, Lori's company is in our Angel MD program. So I'm going to, uh, there's a, there are, there are businesses that are investable by outside people. And then there are businesses that are not. Um, so the, the invest, the kinds that are investable by outsiders are businesses that are going to grow and have what we call a successful exit, meaning the business is either going through an IPO, which is not very common, um, or it's going to be acquired by a bigger business. Um, and the reason that people invest in businesses is for these exits. So if you're growing a business that's a lifestyle business that's going to earn you income and be an awesome local business, that's great. But the likelihood of being able to attract an angel investor is very small because they'll, they don't get their money back, right? So the way that those local, those more local businesses typically go is through the SBA or SCORE or the SBDC. Those are organizations that help you create a business plan and then help you to seek more traditional funding, loans, grants, those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I, I know, for example, the, 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 the city of Las Vegas was, we were working with them to, to get some EDA grants to support some of the local businesses. Um, but, you know, that's a, it's a little bit of a longer process and it's not something that the angel community generally will get involved in. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, Lori, but that's the, that's just, that's just how, that's how it works. You've got, like I said, two classes of businesses. One is local slash lifestyle kinds of businesses. And then the others are the ones that are, I call them scalable, um, investable. You might want to call them because there's going to be an exit at some point. The founder is going into it with the idea that we are going to have an exit. And if you, Mr. or Ms. Angel, invest in my business, I will return you between 10 and 100 times on your investment in me. And here's my plan. Um, so that's that's what you, at the core of it, that's what you need to attract an angel investor. Thanks for your question, Lori. Um, I have a good, that's a good segue for Rich, who has a question for us. Rich, I want to thank you for combing your hair before you came on camera. And your question is? Oh, he's on mute. Rich, we can't hear you. I'm not hearing Rich. I don't know. If no, we don't have him yet. Let's see if he, I'm asking him to unmute here. 
My, if no, we don't hear you. I'm going to ask his question. I'll ask your question and you mime your lips and we'll <laughs> see if we can do it. Okay, ready? I'm going to, how much due diligence do you perform in early stage investing? It varies. Um, when, like, I'll, I'll use us as an example because when we invest, we invest $50,000. Uh, we only invest the money in companies that have gone through our accelerator. So we know the founder pretty well by the time they're, they're qualified to pitch to us. Um, we have a list of 80 items that we want to see in a deal room. Um, everything from, you know, your cap table um, to any contracts that you've signed, any leases that you've signed. If you have, if you've developed a product and you have IP, we want to see patents, um, things like that. Um, even at $50,000, we want to see all of those things. Uh, when you get into the larger rounds, into the, you know, 250,000 to a few million dollars. Um, it goes deeper. It'll probably get into to you, the founder's personal backgrounds a little bit more strongly. Um, you know, they'll do criminal and background checks on the founders and drug tests and those kind of things. When you get into some of the larger rounds in the smaller, earlier stage rounds, usually those kinds of things aren't there, but the documentation that we want to see is there. Um, and you know, I've, I've had, we've had, deals fall out um, because the, we were told that there was a patent on something. And when we went to check on it, or we, we asked for the verification, we found that the patent had lapsed. Not good. Um, it's like, well, well, I can get it back. It's like, yeah, but you should have been more careful. I mean, you're the founder. You should know that. Um, so, you know, other things that, that oftentimes get are a struggle for early stage founders or you know, an organ. You know, what kind? How is your company organized? Are you a a single person company? Are you an, an LLC or an LLP or a C corp? Um, making sure that you've got the company in a state that can, where it can be invested in, and you can document that. Those are all important things in due diligence. Um, for us, our process, we usually set aside um, three to four weeks. Um, we like to think we can get it done in two weeks, but by the time you go back and forth, and documents are missing, and whatnot, it usually takes closer to three or four weeks to get it done. We're talking to Jeff Sailing. He's an angel investor and executive director of Startup Nevada. Um, and we're talking about sort of the elements of, of the perfect post-COVID investor pitch. Um, I, I want to ask a follow-up uh, we were talking a little bit about, you know, marketing and PR, and you said, you know, you should retain marketing PR support as soon as you can afford it. I want to I want to get a little deeper into that. First off, what's more important, marketing or public relations? Well, they both work together. Um, and, and, and a lot of times it will depend on what it is that you do. Um, so, it, you know, if you're if you're if it's more of a B to C play, then getting you know, press and getting out there and getting these implied endorsements because you're in a public area is really important to build consumer confidence. If it's more of a B2B play, then probably targeted outbound or inbound marketing kinds of campaigns are, I would put slightly higher on the list of things that are important for you. Um, and, you know, if you can find folks that are good at both, that's, that's awesome. I know it's not a common skill to have. I, mean, most, I know a lot of folks that aren't familiar with the marketing disciplines will say, well, aren't they the same thing? Uh, so there's lots of founders who aren't as up on, you know, inbound marketing, outbound marketing, public relations, um, and some of the other aspects of, of 
of marketing disciplines that there are out there. But you want to tune your professional engagements with what's most important based on what it is that you're selling. For for startups, for, for early stage companies, would you rather they hire a marketing person or company that can do some PR or a PR person or company that can do some marketing? It's, I haven't, I haven't met a lot of marketing people who are good at PR. I mean, that are really professional at PR. Um, I've met far more PR people that understand the marketing aspects of it. And I think you'd have to make a decision sort of on a case by case basis on who you're doing business with. Um, so, you know, the, the, the marketing folks don't have the connections, right? They don't know how to pitch a story. They don't have the connections to the media and the, and the other things, um, that typically the, the, the PR people do. And the PR people usually have to understand marketing because they're marketing themselves and their own businesses, um, to, to, you know, to attract clients for their PR firm, um, where the other way, the other, the, the reverse is not always true. If, if you're advising a startup on retaining PR, what sort of qualities or skills should they look for? How do they know who the right PR person is to hire? Well, you have to also, first thing you have to know is what, what market are you going after? Are you going after a local market, a, a, a national market, an international market? Um, and, and a little bit about how much you can afford. Now, and I'll use, I'll use our organization as an example. Um, the idea that we would bring on, that we would seek out PR help on a national or international basis would be a waste for us. Um, right. So we're, we're very regionally focused, um, in terms of what it is that we do. So we want to be present in our, in our local markets and the markets that are adjacent to that. Um, so, you know, we're based in Vegas and in Reno. So the idea of getting, getting PR in Nevada and then in the markets that are adjacent to us, whether it's Southern California, Bay area, Salt Lake, Phoenix, maybe Portland and Seattle, um, maybe Denver, you know, is important to us. Um, you know, but having some, having, having a, a relationship with, a with an outfit that's going to give us great PR in London, you know, it's not that, it's not, it's not that important to us. And in, in our startups are the same, you know, we have some startups that, that are focused, they may ultimately be focused internationally, but they're starting regionally. So you want to match, you want to match the skill set of the, PR people that you're considering with what it is that you need. And startups tend to focus in very short-term sprints. So you're talking about, you know, 60 to 90 day cycles, you know, for the startups. So you may start with something that's very regional and ultimately graduate to something that's, that's national and eventually. On the flip side, what advice would you have for PR people who are considering doing business with startups? Are startups good clients? Um, they are, but you, you have to understand, depending on what stage they're in, remember those, those rounds of investing we talked about. Most of the time, the, the professional services people are looking at companies that have, have got a seed round or something bigger than that. Um, because when you're, when you're in the pre-seed rounds and the company's only raised a hundred or $150,000, it's harder to spend the, I'll say 
mid four figure number per month that most of the agencies are going to want to take you on as a client, even a small client. Um, so on the other hand, if your agency has an appetite for <coughs> doing some, I'll call it sweat equity. In other words, I'll do work in exchange for some equity in your company. You know, there, there are going to be a lot of founders who are willing to make that deal. Uh, there, there, there's a history of software developers who made that deal with, with founders who wanted to develop a software product. Um, and the software people don't do it very often anymore because they've done a lot of development work and then the founder didn't do a very good job with it. And ultimately their effort was wasted. So they don't, you don't see a lot of software development houses, um, especially smaller ones doing that anymore. Some of the bigger ones, if they like you, if they believe in you, it's almost like you're pitching to a new angel. And if you want to think of your time as your investment, then you would probably want to learn what angels know about, am I picking the right companies to invest my time in, even though I'm not giving them cash, I'm giving them, you know, if I'm working for them, I can't build another client. So that's some professional services, people in PR or marketing or software development or other places are the legal, the legal area. A lot of lawyers will do that. They'll do a bunch of legal work for people and take equity, but you had to pick your companies carefully. So, Jeff, like 10 years ago, I was at a conference in Paris. It was like a European tech startup conference, and there was a pitch contest. Mm -hmm. And uh, we heard from a small company called Waze, and they had this technology to help you route your trip based on the calculation of all these cell phones moving from cell tower to cell tower. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like such a great idea. But then I got back to L.A. No one was using it. So it didn't work, right? Because yeah. it was kind of a marketplace concept, right? Yeah. You had two two sides of the equation have to win. So this question is from uh, Austin Heller. He was ha he's having difficulty connecting uh, his video, and the question is: When you're building a two sided marketplace, what are some avenues for growing demand in order to match supply? He says, "I'm sure in 2009 you might have had to wait an hour for an Uber in in San Francisco, but now it's only five minutes." So if, if the play is a marketplace, how do you solve that rubric? The mar marketplaces are some of the hardest businesses to grow and get investment for because you, you need to prove that there's demand in two places. And you, need, you need to execute twice, not just once. Um, and the chicken and the egg problem is, is real. You know, you, you, wanna, you probably want to focus more on which whichever side of the market is paying you, um, you usually there's a free component and there's a paid component and whoever it is that's paying you, you have to make sure that they're satisfied most in the short term. And I, I don't know what his, his marketplace play is, um, but there's, like I said, there's usually one sort of freemium or free component. And then there's usually a side that pays. Um, and you want to make sure that those paying customers are getting value as immediately as you can. Otherwise they'll go away and then the whole thing falls apart. Um, so that's, that's generally my, my advice to people who are looking to get investment. Um, if you have, you know, a Facebook scenario where, you know, you need to build the giant marketplace first of all the humans before you can start selling advertisement, uh, you know, where we are the product on Facebook. Um, you know, that's, 
if you're if you have plans that are that big, then plan to raise a lot of money and have people buy into your vision because it's going to take a long time to create a market that's big enough that you can actually sell advertising against. So if it's if it's an advertising play, that could take a lot longer. Hey, Austin, on my sister podcast, the B2B lead gen podcast, I talked to the CEO of a company called BuildZoom, which is building a marketplace to match um, uh, property owners with contractors. And we we talked at length about this, and I'm going to be releasing that soon. And I'll put a link to where you can subscribe to that podcast um, in the chat um, in a moment. Um, I'm going to bring Jeff on. I think Jeff has a question as well. Give me one sec to do that. And then I'll, I'll, while he's coming on, um, what are the elements of the perfect post COVID pitch? Um, well, you're going to see the same similar advice almost everywhere you look, whether you're looking on Y Combinator or 500 startups or any place, anybody that's investing, um, you know, you want to cover the elements of your, whatever the problem is that you're solving and the solution that you've created, you need to cover those basic elements in your pitch. Um, you need to address the market that you're going after. How big is it? Um, how quickly can you get at it? What's the competition in it? Um, that's, 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 that's a part that most early or first time founders don't spend nearly enough time. in. they'll, they'll want to spend lots and lots of time describing their, solution on all the features and benefits and they don't spend enough time talking about the market and the competition next you want to talk about your business model um how is it that you're going to make money um, then you want to talk about some basic financial projections about where this thing's going over time so that you can have some justification for the money or the ask that you're that you're trying to raise um, you want to talk about your team you know yourself as an expert and then anybody that's on your team um, that's an important component and then sort of the investment opportunity you know what is what is your ask what's the investment opportunity that you're presenting to these people so you know other people will quantify it as the the technical solution the market opportunity the business model the team slide and the investment opportunity those five things as opposed to the six things i went through they, there's a little bit of overlap between all of those things um but where you want to spend the perfect pitch spends 50% or more of the pitch time on the market, the market opportunity, and, and your business model. How does it work? Because remember, investors, they'll get really quickly what the problem is and what your solution is. They'll, they'll get it. They're smart. Um, you want them to fall in love with your team and your business to invest. And if they have questions about exactly how does your solution work, they'll ask. Don't worry. You don't have to explain it all in the first five minutes. It's talk to them. Um, give them just enough to keep getting curious, but spend most of your time talking about the market. And having competitors is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, who are your competitors? We don't have any. It's like, no. I mean, that's almost a deal killer right there if somebody tells me there are no um, whatever this problem is that you're solving, people are solving it somehow. It might not be exactly the way that you're proposing, but there is a way that they're solving that problem somehow. Um, and you need to, you need to understand what that is. And that, that, that's your competition. 
Jeff, you have a question. Um, I was just, you know, to step back a little bit about the marketing versus PR. I have found um, in the businesses that I've started and worked with that there's a specific time and place when a PR firm or a marketing firm is preferential based on what stage you're at um, in developing your company. You know, if you're not ready for revenue, PR sometimes is better because you need the image in your presentation in order to get that angel investor or that seed investor. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I wouldn't disagree with that. And I think that's another one of those situations where you kind of are going business by business. And at that particular time, having good press or, or a good impression is a good thing. I, I had a, I had a, a colleague of mine um, who was using HubSpot as their CRM and their marketing engine and was, was getting, um, was targeting people, targeting paid advertising on social media specifically to the angel investment groups that they were going to. So they would go to pitch an angel investment group and for the three or four or five days before they showed up to pitch, these particular individuals at the angel investment firm would, would see this, these advertisements popping up on all their social media. Um, by the time they got in front of these, um, you know, the, the investors, they, they had been inundated by, by information about this particular startup. So much so that the angels um, threw them out shortly after the meeting saying, you guys are spending way too much money on stuff you can't afford right now. Uh, not understanding that it was super targeted and it didn't really cost that much money. Uh, but the lesson still is, if you can make a good impression, um, you know, do it. I mean, whether that's, whether that's through the marketing channel or through the PR channel. And, and having PR, you know, where there's this, this implied endorsement by being on a third party's platform is, is it's better. I mean, it's better for, it's better for you as a startup. It's better uh, marketing. If you can, if you can get it. Right. Hey, on the PR side, uh, just a note um, on this program in December, we're going to be talking to the senior editor of Crunchbase. And, um, you know, one of Crunchbase also has uh, a, a sister company called Crunchbase News. And one of the things, you know, that's so great about PR, if you, if you do a funding round and it gets covered in Crunchbase, that really gets your, your name out there. So um, if you signed up for this session today, you won't get that Crunchbase News episode. I'm posting a link to the chat where you can sign up for that. Um, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, and Crunchbase is an awesome resource for anybody who's... Uh, starting a company or who's thinking about becoming an angel investor. We use the heck out of it. Um, love those guys. Jeff, where do you find investors? How do you start? Um, so you have to do research. This is not, um, it's, you know, you don't just, you don't just go out and pitch and hope, right? You, you, you do some research. Uh, we, as and we help the, the people who are members of our group by, doing some of the research for them. We have a list of about 300 um, invest, either individual investors or seed rounds or pre-seed funds or seed funds that we know are actively making investments now um, and that are interested in different things. Some of them, you know, are interested in certain check sizes. Some of them are in interested in certain industries. Some of them are interested in certain geographies. You as a founder have to do your research. Some of it gets done on Crunchbase. Uh, some of it gets done by just do, searching for um, people who have invested in 
other companies that are similar. You can, if, you, if you're in a, a, a market vertical, look at who your competitors are. See if they have been funded by somebody. Um, and, and go out and talk to those investors. They clearly have an interest in what you're doing. Um, but you want to make sure that you're talking as best you can. You're, you're, you're approaching somebody or a company or an individual who has interest in what it is that you do. And then you want to figure out what their process is. If they're a big fund um, or an angel group, they're going to have a website. They're going to post their process right on it. Follow it. If you can get an introduction to one of the people who's part of the process, awesome. Great. So if you have a, a network of people that you can go to that might know somebody that's in that process, get the introduction. It doesn't always help. It, I mean, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't always, it doesn't mean because you know one of the five people on the investment committee that, that you're going to get an investment. They might recognize you when you do come in front of them. It's like, oh yeah, I, I know that person. Um, yeah, there's probably some benefit to that. But you, you need to follow, you need to find people who are interested in what you're doing and you need to follow the process that they have for the investment. Um, you know, it's, I, I can tell you personally, as soon as people know that I'm an angel investor, I get just decks just showing up in my email unsolicited and they have no idea. I mean, I'll get decks for stuff that there's not, not a chance. If you even spent a minuscule amount of time looking at me, you would know I don't, I'm not investing in, in B2C product companies. That's not what my thing is. Um, and I'll get decks for B2C product companies or big retail plays. And it's like, no, I mean, if you had a SaaS thing that was sort of enterprisey kind of stuff, then yeah, I might take a look at it. Um, but, but do, a, do, some, do some work on your own so that when you're putting things in front of people who you want to take, a, take you seriously, that you've done some work and it's obvious that you have. Um, you know, if, you can, if you're going to put a, your deck or, a, or an executive summary in front of somebody, see if they've written anything. I mean, if, if you can find some articles or blogs or, or podcasts that they've been on, find out what they like. Mention it in your, in your approach to them. So there's, there's tons of information out there about who's investing. The question is picking the right ones, following their process, and making a personal approach that makes sense. Uh, Terry asks um, if we're recording this and if the video will be available. I'm posting a link to the YouTube channel so you can get it there. You know, I founded a software as a service company years ago that I scaled up and sold. Um, and I never took investment. I bootstrapped it awesome. with sweat equity. And those were the days when, you know, I was able to partner with a developer and an ops guy and give them a piece of the action and build the thing up and sell it. The company is still around. It's called IPR Software. And it was essentially the first company that allowed a non-technical person to manage the newsroom section of a corporate website without being reliant on a webmaster. Nice. And, you know, it, it had everything in there and, and it's it's still around and it handles the website for LinkedIn and Toyota and Xerox and a bunch of big companies. So I never took the money. But I know you can do that. That's the best way to go. Well, let me ask you, how do you decide whether or not to bootstrap or whether or not to raise money? Um, it, it, it's it is a very individual and personal decision. Um, the minute that you take money from somebody, you are committed to having to working toward an exit. You are. 
um, unless it's unless it's unless you've got your grandma bought into the fact that she's going to get dividends from you. Um, the minute you take equity money um, or a note from somebody, you're committed to selling the company. So if you're not sure whether that's what you want to do, then don't take external investment. And then every every time that you think about it, you have to make that decision again. So clearly, if you are able to build the company yourself and have an exit, you get to keep all the money, you and whoever else you, you, you've managed to give some equity to. Um, that's, that's the best for you if you can do it. There are some businesses that you just, you need outside capital to grow it big enough to have it be meaningful. Um, and you know, if you're taking in money to grow the company, that's, that's the best kind of money to take from, from the outside, as opposed to taking money to build your thing, whatever it is. Now you, you work with some software engineers who are willing to work for equity. That's not as common anymore as it used to be. Right. Um, but there still are some, some outfits that do that. Um, Chances are, you know, at every family, you know, dinner party, every Thanksgiving, you probably have somebody come up to you and say, hey, I got a great idea for a startup, right? I remember hearing Dave McClure of 500 Startups give a talk at some conference, and he basically said, look, if you show up with an idea, but you don't have any engineering talent, I'm not investing because I'm investing in the engineer. It's an engineering idea and you don't have an engineer. So why would I invest in you to, to lead the engineer? You don't even have an engineer. What, so how important is having some sort of proof of concept that you can kick and, and pull on before you, before you plunk down some investment cash? Well, I'll tell you right now, I, I wouldn't, I would not invest in anything that didn't have a beta or an MVP or a, a prototype or something done. Um, I expect that the founder has to take it at least that far and figure out how to get there. And if they can't, probably not worth investing in. Um, yeah. And to your point and to Dave McClure's point, um, the founding team, you know, ideas are a, are, are a dime a dozen. I mean, they're easy. Ideas are all over the place. Um, the hard part is execution. So having the idea in combination with the team or the founder, if it's a single founder who can execute, that's what investors are looking for. Um, not the idea. It's the, it's that combination of the ability to execute with a, with an idea that's got a market that, 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 and the person who can actually win the market and grow the company big enough. That's what you invest in. Well, let's say there's somebody listening to this right now and they, they can check all those boxes and they want help from you. Mm-hmm. How do they get it? Easy. You go to our web startupmv.org is our website. Um, there's two places that you can sign up for help. Um, one is the pitch to us. It's hard to miss. We, we pop up stuff all the time on the website or you can go to the menu and, and, and just sign up the pitch. Our worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get um, a lot of feedback from our from our deck review panel in terms of you know is this is this something that we would do um, and if you know, if we can't help you we'll put you into our online incubator um, where you're going to get a lot more help from that um, and if you're on the investor side if you're thinking hey this sounds interesting I'd like to be an angel investor 
um, there's an investor registration form and we have a lot of education that we'll take investors through. Whether or not they want to invest with us in our funds or whether they just want to be an angel investor generally, um, we have ways of teaching people who are interested in doing that kind of thing how to do it well. So that you don't get talked into an idea at Thanksgiving dinner after you've had a few too many glasses of wine. Um, where, you know, we want, we want the angels to do the investing, but we want them to win so that they can keep doing investing. Um, because if you do one or two that don't work, you're not going to do it anymore. You know, you do one or two that work, you're going to do 10, which is good. It's good for all of us.